Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Heather Keeney, and I am an Associate Professor of History at Westmont College. And I am speaking now with Rachel Winslow, who is also an Associate Professor of History at Westmont College, but she is also the Director of the Center for Social Entrepreneurship for Westmont, and we are meeting um, at that center downtown in downtown Santa Barbara right now. And we are here to talk about her recent book, The Best Possible Immigrants, International Adoption, and the American Family, which came out in 2017 under Penn Publishing. So, Rachel, what brought you to the point of wanting to write a book on international adoption? What inspired you? Thanks, Heather. Thanks for taking the time to interview me today. I, um, I'm really excited to talk about what led to this process because it was not a very academic process is the way we generally come across research topics. Can often be library-based or archivally-based or after a lot of work in secondary sources. And I found myself coming to this project actually from, as, from a, the field as somebody who was working in the adoption industry. I was running an office for international adoption, um, working with adoptive parents, working with social workers, working with uh, government immigration authorities, trying to get paperwork together. And at the same time, working on a master's degree in history at a local school. And I was thinking, well, I need a topic for a historiography paper. <laughs> what better than to think about what has been written on international adoption, I wonder. I had been interested in history of politics in the 19th and 20th century U.S., as well as history of the way that political culture shapes average people's experience of politics. And I thought that maybe there were some interesting roots there into how international adoption came to be. So when I started looking into it, and this was in mid-2000s, 2005, I discovered that very little had been written historically at that point. There had been much in the social work literature and sociology literature and anthropology, but less from a historical perspective. And so I started looking into it because of that paper topic. And when I began delving into the long story of how adoption had been a very foreign institution in the U.S. and then had become incredibly popular um, by the mid-century and into the present point, I thought that it was an institution worth exploring to understand how it came to be. Okay. Thank you. So it sounds like you're combining history, but it also interested in policy. Can you say more about that? When I think of international adoption, I suppose many people... It's a heart story. It's a personal story. It's yeah. a family story. So how in your work or in this book is that bringing together the political policy, the historical context, and people who are longing to add to their family? That's, a, that's another really great question because you're right. I mean, this is often a subject that is covered by social historians or memoirists or personalized accounts of how a family was able to become reunited through adoption. I, my interest in policy 
is probably partly because of my interest in politics and the ways that we, that certain um, laws and ways of doing things become standardized. And part of that, um, part of that question that pressed on me for international adoption was trying to figure out how our nation, which in World War I was very nativist, and as there are French and Belgian orphans all over Western Europe, and people write to the, who wrote to the Children's Bureau at the time would say, um, what are we doing about these orphans? Would it be a potential possibility to adopt them? And to have the chief of the Children's Bureau say, no, that's not a thing. International adoption doesn't exist in that hmm. capacity. So to go from that in World War I to a place in World War II where there's a foster care program with British orphans and people are begging to adopt hmm. um, children orphaned through war, throughout Western Europe, um, in Japan. And, and then afterward, as sites of Cold War conflicts move, so to Korea, um, after that to Vietnam, how American families' reactions were often, how can we adopt these children to help out in a humanitarian way? Hmm. So to me, that was less a question of social history, although certainly social history plays a part, and so does cultural history in that story. But it's a question of what policies change to make that possible. How did we go from a completely restrictive immigration policy in 1924 to the Refugee Relief Act in 1953, which for the first time permitted 4,000 non-quota visas issued to international orphans. That's a big policy sea change. And I felt like if the question wasn't asked from a policy perspective, I wasn't going to get at that change in emergency measures. So, so would you say this is a story of successful democracy, that the people, the citizens of America, the prospective moms and dads in America wanted something mm. and got their government to help realize it? Yeah, well, you're touching on one of the factors, which is that adoptive parents had an incredible amount of clout uh, from a constituent perspective in the, in the 1950s. And that's, I mean, adoptive parents didn't always have clout, so this is a change. It's different. But these are middle-class citizens in the era of the baby boom who were childless and socially really marginalized, really, actually. Right. And so to be able to have children gave them gave them the power to be able to advocate for themselves in a way that I think was... Um, definitely demonstrated by the adoptive parent organizations and all the other sort of community grassroots organization that happened in the 1950s around the expansion of adoption programs. But I think part of what I try to cover in my book, and I, um, and I realized as I went through the story, is at one point one of my advisors asked me, well, who is driving this? What do you think is really driving this? And I told her honestly, well, I think a lot of people are driving this. I don't just think it's adoptive parents. I don't just think it's the Cold War context. I don't just think it's lawmakers. I don't just think it's private adoption agencies. I don't just think it's social workers. I think actually international adoption was in the interest of many. And because it was in the interest of many, I suppose that you could look at it as a democratic triumph in that way. I mean, the reason it was successful and is still somewhat successful for as long as it has been is because if one group had had the corner on it, it would not have lasted that mm, way. And in fact, yeah. many groups cared about it. And that's why it has persisted. And, has, and how far through time? So you're starting with the World War I, and where does your book end? Like, what is the kind of time frame that so, you cover? So the time frame mostly starts within World War II. I do go back a little to earlier um, notions of child saving, how childhood valuation changes. I mean, really, this is a big story of the 20th century mm. because... 
when we when we consider the beginning of adoption, it was a placing out movement trying to get poor working class kids from orphanages in New York City um, into solid agrarian families in the Midwest, right? And so and that so that's a certain logic or assumption about childhood, right? That children are um, economically valuable, that we need children in order to make the farm survive or to run our shop. But we see a shift point, I mean, much earlier for middle class families, but then later in working class families and in policy, where children have become, in the words of Viviana Zelizer, emotionally priceless and economically worthless. And that when that valuation shifts, that's a very big shift in the adoption point too, because the currency of the adopted child changes from being a teenage boy who is incredibly useful around the farm to being a completely economically worthless baby girl with blue eyes and blonde hair and all the currency that emotion will allow, right? So it's a really... Um, it's a really important story to periodize earlier because of that. And then internationally speaking, really picking up with World War II and the crises that were happening in terms of displaced persons and the policies that resulted from that. So it starts really truly in the 40s and then moves through, I conclude the book in the 1970s, the mid-1970s at the end of Operation Baby Lift, which is the mass evacuation of thousands of orphans from Vietnam in the last month as the war was ending. Um, and the U.S. forces were withdrawing. Really, I, I end it there for several reasons, but most principally because that was the first time that international adoption really did receive critical public backlash against the entire structure. And that's a really, that's new. I mean, really, it was, it was an incredibly, incredibly popular subject. And the media was was deeply invested in the stories of international adoptees and international um, adoptive families and the stories of humanitarianism and goodwill and just democratic largesse. I mean, this is, this is a really great story. But by the 70s, with the sort of fragmentation of the state, the distrust that's happening in government, the feeling of a war that was just not incredibly popular... This idea of airlifting out all of these children suddenly hit the public, and they said, wow, is this the right move? Should we be removing these children from Vietnam? And there were really some productive conversations that started at that point. It kind of changed, I would say, the era of international adoption from the mid-70s on. So that's why the book ends there as sort of an end point to where it started and kind of um, what was left in the 70s do you think it was also a factor that in the 40s and 50s, isn't it true that in the 40s and 50s, most of these adopted children are coming from Europe, and then now in the 70s, they're coming from Asia, and there's a racial component in terms of who do we want to be bringing into this country? Yeah, so really, truly at first, I mean, I would say Europe was certainly in the sights of many American families, especially British orphans, French orphans. But I, I will say right from the beginning, Japanese orphans probably had very similar U.S. base of interest. And then, I mean, by, I mean, by 1953, we have it where orphans are coming from at this point is Korea. And so these are Asian kids. And many of these now, some of them are definitely mixed race kids. These are American GIs who are either white or black who are having children with Korean birth moms. But the other half of those kids adopted out in the, from the early 50s on are, are technically full Korean, whatever that means. But there seems right away to be an expansiveness toward Asia, thinking about kind of 
coming out of World War II, there's there's an embracing of China as a diplomatic hedge against Japan in the war, right? And so there's this. They, um, the historian Charlotte Brooks talks about the Chinese moving as from alien neighbors. Uh, to these friends by the time we get to the 1950s, these very strategic friends. And many historians and scholars have pointed to this expansiveness toward Asia in the 1950s. And so coming off of that, I mean, we have a lot of certainly American Orientalist takes on that, thinking about Rogers and Hammerstein and South Pacific and the King and I, right, and all these depictions. But along with that, there was there was an embracing by white families of these Korean kids. And it really was... Um, certainly racialized because this was an assimilation story. This was a story about bringing these Korean kids into white families and making them American, which means white. But it was also an expansive kind of moment in terms of understanding who could be part of your family. So it was sort of kind of both things. It sounds like there's a sense maybe in the 50s that there's still a sense that U.S. foreign policy can be used for good and adoption is one of those mechanisms but by the 70s, Vietnam, Watergate, were just skeptical of the U.S. government's ability to do good overseas, and therefore international adoption also becomes a victim of that skepticism and therefore pulling back. Absolutely. And I would say, too, to another, to another angle of that, I mean, the model in the 50s toward Korea and from some private agencies toward Vietnam and also in Europe before that, excuse me, was... Um, was one of humanitarianism and humanitarian rescue. I By the 1960s, I mean, experts are sort of leery of that as, as re, in regarding to child welfare. And so when we have child welfare and embassy officials and USAID officials in Vietnam in the 60s, they're really looking at child welfare through a development or, or modernization lens. And that modernization project actually fails pretty critically in Vietnam, as you know. Right. And so I... I think part of it was that even the non-humanitarian route didn't really work the way they had hoped it would work. And therefore, the ability to just sort of pull children out of country felt like a cleaner end point. Um, and so, yeah, that critique that's coming up, that critique is coming from different places. I mean, the humanitarian fail failures, but also the failures in modernization and making democracy the consistent um, system abroad was not working the way that the U.S. thought it was. And so children... Of course, we're talked about in the media as being political ploys, flags waved by either side, bandied about, depending upon which political football you wanted to pick up at the time. And they certainly seemed like that by the mid-70s. That's very illuminating. Um, the title is The Best Possible Immigrants. Mm -hmm. That's making a judgment call. Mm -hmm. So I guess maybe could we step back a little bit? So kind of the big argument of your book. Um, and again, is this a value judgment? Is this looking at, this is what people were saying at the time? Does the book include assessment of what has happened to adoptive children? Yeah. Unpack the title and the big picture. Abs absolutely. So this is a quote from the 1956 Senate subcommittee hearing on refugees. And in it, when considering an expansion of the non-quota refugee program for for international adoptees, one of the senators says that, well, by far, international adoptees are the best possible immigrants because of their lack of ties to other, their culture and nation, their flexibility, and their youth. So they saw international adoptees as inherently moldable because of their age, um, and, that, and that children 
were movable, that they were transportable entities that could move between nation and state without very much disruption was the idea behind it. And so that, that phrase, that framework is meant to suggest the era from the 40s to the 70s and the way that the U.S. largely spoken understood international adoptees. As, and the reasons why immigration law became incredibly expansive in order to be able to permit their admission. Because part of what you have to remember is the immigration story at this point is that um, we still have a quota system, a race-based quota system around the globe that is limiting um, immigration from most Asian countries to 100 per, uh, per country. And so we have all of these U.S. families wanting to adopt these Korean orphans and I mean, thousands and thousands of Korean orphans, and we have no quotas to support that. So actually in this kind of slick move, <laughs> this Senate comes up with um, and passes the Refugee Relief Act. The Refugee Relief Act is mainly directed at refugees, political, religious refugees, and from hostile countries or countries suffering what the U.S. would have understood at the time to be under communist rule, right? Now, these adoptees are coming from South Korea, and South Vietnam, these are not refugee countries. So they actually, for this brief moment in time, up until 1961, when they formalize um, international adoptees as part of regular immigration law, they categorize these, these, um, these kids as refugees from friendly countries hmm. in order to sort of bypass and get around uh, the existing immigration law at the time, which was the 1952 McCarran-Walker Act. So they are in some ways put in this very interesting position that some people have said, well, it's a loophole. And part of what I argue throughout the book is that eh, I'm sort of skeptical about that term of loophole. I think loopholes often are very intentional, you know, that we call them loopholes for all kinds of expedient reasons. But really, they wanted to make this happen, and they were trying to figure out the best way to do it given the governing law. And so that just goes to show you how it and, – and also, as, as kids came to the U.S., they were automatic citizens – in a process that we know takes much longer for adults, right? And so this automatic citizenship, this non-quota visas, the ability, once an American family is willing to vouch for you, you're in, that gives them a very privileged path of migration. And that's what the book's title references. So I know we're both historians, but I so much want to leap to the, the current situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. So, I mean, one doesn't have to be so, so current, but I guess, what would you say? I mean, both in terms of the flexibility that if people, if the government wants to achieve something, it can find ways to achieve it. Um, interest in common good, treating children differently than adults. What would you say, like, in terms of, and I know there's ongoing discussion about how definition of refugee is still left over from post-World War II, and it's completely inadequate to what makes people refugees today. What would you say in terms of this insight of the multiple stakeholders coming together to move the discussion to achieve something? Do you feel like that, that there's lessons to be learned or insight to be gained in terms of people who want to try to shape policy today? Hmm, that's a great question. I mean, I think I think there's a couple of different answers. I can answer very um, abstractly with you along this sort of how do we look at pol emergency yeah. measures and policy changing over time. And then I can talk even more concretely about the way that's happened in international adoption in the more recent era. But I do think 
there is something about our democracy when we have lots of different groups come to the table that is deeply influential for whether or not um, whether or not our society is willing to sort of change course on something. So, I mean, adoption, this, this idea of foreignness in your home, becoming part of your very family, is this deeply intimate act that just seems very different than a lot of other parts of American history. And, mm-hmm. and it happened because of a lot of really sweet spots, a lot of very contingent situations, right? But, but it still happened. And I think that's really, that's actually really interesting when we think about it. Now, it, I mean, the counterpoint to this is it happened in countries where the U.S. had a strategic aim, right? So these are not children from all over the place. These are children from specific Cold War hotspots where this is happening. And, and as, we, as we go through into the modern era, we, we just see very much similar kinds of patterns. I mean, I think about Russia and then, um, and then the, the earthquake in Haiti and the response there, the tsunami in Thailand. I think about when people in the U.S. now hear about natural disasters or terrible things happening, the first knee-jerk reaction that they have is to think about international adoption. Hmm. So that is the result of both policy changing over time and cultural embeddedness that policy does for us, where we start to believe a certain thing is capable because the policy has made it possible. And then once we have those policy expansions, it can be really tricky sometimes to roll back what we've given. And so in the case of international adoption, um, the expansive policy was really tricky, actually, to roll back. And it took international law through The Hague. It took a lot of decades for the U.S. to ratify that. It meant the shutting down of a lot of international sending sites, a lot of countries that were sending kids that were not following Hague procedure, involving bribery and corruption in a bunch of different countries. Um, It just required a lot of work to get it back to that point. But even once it was rolled back, in the case, Haiti's a really great example of this, actually. Um, You know, there's this Haitian, there's this earthquake and then the horrible flooding and the devastation to the whole area. And so, so many American lawmakers slash private citizens wanted to do something about it. And so what you see is them on the ground doing everything they can to try to get more visas issued for these kids, trying to get them out the door. To, I mean, the Pennsylvania governor, Ed Rundell, charters a flight to try to airlift kids out. And, and this is actually not legal, per, like not permitted in the way that The Hague has sort of put the kibosh on these. I mean, at the time, I mean... I think it was Janet Napolitano, who's the Secretary of Health and Human Services, who comes out and says, we will only issue so many parole visas. Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State at the time, and she says, we will not let very many, only the adoptions that have been started will be finished up. All that being said, there's this little provision called parole visas, which we often give in a crisis situation. So think about after the Vietnam War with all of the refugees from Operation New Life, they were all parole visas. Um, So in the case of Haiti, and this is in 2010, we have... And we have a staggering number of children brought to the U.S. under parole visas. We have flights taking off chartered by this Pennsylvania governor. While Haitian officials are, like, waving them down on the runway, you don't, you don't have the paperwork to take these kids. And they're still taking them because there's a pattern in the state of policy expansions. And once we expand, it's hard to retract without the cultural shifts with it that say, how can we imagine a family differently than the wealthier family coming in and adopting the child from the poorer place? What does it look like to support the birth parents in the homes where they are? What does it look like for us to actually um, have a more expansive view of family that would, you know, include supporting for caring for, but being more of a partnership across, across the sea. So 
that's these are some of the reasons why things can sometimes be slow to change and then slow to roll back once they've changed policy wise and how um, how even with resistance from the international community we still have we still have the prerogative sometimes to do this kind of humanitarian rescue act for children. Did working on this leave you feeling optimistic about, again, ability to do good, ability to collaborate and achieve something. Again, these are huge operations, lives fundamentally changed. Um, Or were you more struck by bureaucracy, red tape, unintended consequences? Mm. Mm. I I like to, I, I tend to go to uh, optimist or pessimist, but, um, yeah, do you have any thoughts on that in terms of, yeah, when you think of other big issues, do, having this under your belt as a, as a test case, again, I kind of, yeah. Yeah, it gives, I would say, so a little bit of both. So I would say there's hopefulness for sure in the fact that when American people and lawmakers and organizations, public and private, come together, we can somehow, in some cases, make a, make really good responses happen publicly. So this happens in 1957 with Hungarian airlifts for children who are fostered for a temporary time in the U.S. and then sent back. The same with Cuban, the Cuban Missile Crisis and Cuban Refugee Crisis in 1960. Operation Pedro Pan was the name of that. And there are these moments where U.S. families are very willing to act as foster families and to keep kids for a little while and then to give them back to their families. And I think there were moments like that that were deep glimmers of hope for me because I could imagine a situation where where we were coming together kind of in an international space to protect really, truly the best interests of the child, which could sometimes be adoptive families for sure, but other times is being with their own family, if at all possible, extended family in their own country. I'm so hopeful in that regard in the ways I saw it work fairly well. Um, And then I think um, one of the deep, deep refrains throughout this was the fact that people from all places feel like the system was set against them Hmm. and that the system is this sort of homogenous, um, big, um, unwieldy thing that makes humanitarian work and makes relief work so hard. And so that, that feels, that feels more impenetrable. I think that's the piece that, that especially in our very politicized moment, I think people are talking past each other because they either see the system as one that perpetuates harm or the system that has a hope for something good, and they can't kind of see around that. And I saw a lot of those conversations with, around the subject of international adoption where there are some real good things that happen in that space, but there's also some real harm. And the system protects children from harm and sometimes does that in ways that really infuriate people who can't see the reasons why. And so feeling like sometimes there needs to be better communication across all the sides and the ways that we go about relief and humanitarian work. And it also sounds like there's a shift. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning changing understandings of childhood, Mm -hmm. right? So this idea of a child is the best possible immigrant because they're malleable. Building on an earlier shift um, that they're economically useful to emotionally beneficial. Do you see in the course of time that you're covering changing, you mentioned changing perceptions of the family, but what about changing perceptions of children and what's in children's best interest? How does that come into the story? 
Yeah, well, it comes into the story in that the world has changed a lot by the 1970s. And what is seen in national interests in the 1950s can't be framed in such strict nationalist terms. There's almost a universality talked about in the way that we think about human rights and increasing international commissions on protecting people in this international space. So that comes across in childhood too. I mean, I think, I think children become very much sort of citizens of the world by the time we hit the 70s. And that's, that's a dubious place, right? Because we still have boundaries and we still have national sovereignty and we still have national interests. But children, especially framed by those who want to be able to help, are being seen to be still moldable, but in a, in a new, more internationalized space. Um, and I, I mean, I think that's come under some critique in recent years, for sure. And I think, you know, even Russia, the way it's sort of dialed back the ability mm-hmm. to adopt, has sort of done it in such nationalist terms. No, you, they were using it as a diplomatic tool. You know, the United States has done this to us. We are not interested because of the treaty and the mm-hmm. um, sanctions that have come down with tariffs. So I think, I think the childhood has changed again. But I'm, I. I, I'm too much of a historian to be able to tell you <laughs> yeah. exactly how to categorize that in this moment. Fair. It's a fluid. It's, it's a fluid, fluid state. Um, but that, yeah, this idea of children as citizens of the world in a, in a world of nation states. Um, I'll be thinking about that for a while. Um, so just very briefly, last question. Um, what are you working on now? Oh, well, it's interesting you should ask because it is, I found this topic when researching the, the book. Um, and it is a project that looks at the political, cultural, and history of red tape in America, the metaphor and the term, and how that became part of our national story and conversation when we thought about government and we thought about um, state versus local versus federal. And we think about culture and government as the enemy or government as the friend. I'm curious as to how this metaphor has had such durability over the last 150 years when it came into first use during the Civil War in the U.S. And of course, it has a, it's an international term. Of course, it starts in sort of Imperial Britain in India and South Asia as the red tape being tied around bundles of paperwork being shuttled between offices. And so um, cutting the red tape was very literal in those renderings. But the U.S. Um, takes it on in the 1860s. And it just kind of has a life of its own in our country. And I'm fascinated by that. So I recently completed a article on um, World War II red tape and the ways that it was used during wartime to limit um, business production or to regulate munitions, suppliers, and and we'll continue to work on that project in the near future. It sounds like, once again, very timely. I was drawn to ask you about red tape. It was was so (laughs) clear that the the topic lent itself that way, and we're living in a political moment in which getting rid of regulation is seen as an important thing. So we're all still haunted by red tape. So thank you very much for your time, Rachel. This was a stimulating conversation. Thank you, Heather.